episode 55. Based on the Fresh Vibe Podcast, I'm your host, Rohati, coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome. This is a podcast on decolonizing and deconstructing Christianity, but we also include different topics, including this one, the Enneagram, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, but what you probably aren't familiar with is the Enneagram through an anti-racist lens. Don't get your feathers in a ruffled bunch. This is a liberating episode with Jessica D. Dixon. I'm not going to take up any more time. Rate, review, leave five stars wherever you pick up this podcast. Let's just jump right in. Meet Jessica. Yeah, I, I call myself a life empowerment coach who helps people find healing at the intersections of the Enneagram, anti-racism, and embodiment. Yeah. Oh, so those those two. Enneagram, yeah, I've heard of it before. <laughs> and I've heard of anti-racism too. But together and the embodiment piece. So I didn't even remember that. I was just so excited around anti-racism and the Enneagram. But embodiment, oh, that's just another factor to add into touch and feel of the Enneagram. I'm so excited to learn from you in this episode. Before we begin, let's situate ourselves. For the listeners, would you let us know where are you right now? What lands are your feet touching the ground upon? Yeah, I am on the unceded land of the Kumeyaay Nation in what is colonially known as San Diego, California. Where all of my cauliflower comes from. Or San Diego is probably too far south. <laughs> Do I have that right? Is San Diego south and San Jose north? Yes, San, San yeah, Diego okay. is at the, it's at at the, the bottom. bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Whew. You have to forgive my Canadian ignorance. <laughs> I have so much forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, forgiveness in spades. How did you wind up in San Diego? I came to San Diego in 2017 because I used to work in higher education. So now, mm. I, of course, I run my own business. I'm also a fitness instructor. Um, but before I worked in higher education and residence life, and I was at a school in Ohio. Okay. And I it's had an opportunity to come work at an institution in San Diego at the University of California, San Diego. And I had a few video interviews and got offered the job and packed up my car and gave away a ton of furniture and moved across the country. I want to jump right into the Enneagram. And I would love if you started from the beginning, started from the top or the bottom, <laughs> and assume that I know nothing about the Enneagram. Uh, I, I think I recall being exposed to the Enneagram for the first time in 2018, okay. when someone who was down with it was trying to pick out my numbers. They tried to type you, didn't they? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and to help me along the way of like, this might be, you know, like this might be what you are or. Okay. Um, and so that was my first exposure to the Enneagram. Um, but I also have the, both a, an acceptance of, wow, th- there are important tools out there to help me learn more about myself mm-hmm. and also a reticence to uh, adopt any type of program or computer result that tells me what I am. <laughs> I respect you know, that. Don't tell me what I am. I'll tell me who I am. <laughs> Anyways, that's that's my own trauma I got to work with. But uh, Enneagram, I, well, I, what is this? I think there's an implication that there's a problem, and I don't think that that's a problem. Those are wise words. Yeah. This has become a therapy session right <laughs> off the bat, like four minutes in. So I found the Enneagram when I was still in higher education. I had just become a supervisor um, for a full-time professional staff. And I was like, oh, I need to find something that's going to help them with their professional development. Because I was in my late 20s. They were in their, some of them were in their like 60s, 70s. So, you know, they were much older than me. And I felt like I wanted to be respectful of them. And so we had done things like strengths or the Myers-Briggs or true colors or all a lot of those things before. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I need something new. I need something fresh. I did a Google search. I don't know what brought me to the Enneagram, but there was just a PDF document that had a description of the types. And I was like, wow, this is powerful. Because I I liked that it didn't just, (laughs) it didn't just talk about the strengths or the good things. It talked about all of it. It talked about where your ish smells and how you need Mm. to deal with it. Um, And for me, that's like, I'm like, that's a place where we can really grow from. It felt like Mm. this, Mm. this authentic place of truth that we could really look at our lives from. Um, So I became very obsessed, started studying it just fell in love with the system, but it did take me a few years to actually find my type. So I, I found information about the Enneagram and then I found a test and I've taken several tests, many tests, over 20 tests, at least since then, every test has typed me as a type two. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm a type two. Um, now I would, uh, now I tell people I, that I don't recommend that you take a test. I recommend that you, do a lot more introspective work. But at that time, I didn't really have anyone to guide me into that. So I didn't know. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, it took me two years, um, a lot of do- of work around what I thought were type two issues like codependence um, mm. and an mm. anxious attachment style. So as I was doing some of that work and as I heard more women of color and women speak about being an Enneagram 8, I started to realize that act, that actually was my type. Because when I first read any kind of Enneagram descriptions, the descriptions all felt like a white male eight who had a whole lot of privilege, who was violent, yeah, um, who was a bully. And I'm like, I that's not who I even could be, if, even if I this wanted This is for to. the eight. Yeah, for the eight. Uh-huh. Okay, so it was yeah. always like at a distance for me. Mm, mm. Um, until I, I heard more women speak about it. I heard more about like the subtypes and I was like, oh, no, no, no. I actually am an eight. But my ideal, my ideal self was very much the Enneagram too, because for my ideal self, that was the good Christian woman. 
Mm. And so mm. the good Christian woman is like the one who selflessly gives of herself, who needs to be needed, who does everything by denying or repressing her own desires, wants, her own needs, her own feelings. And I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be. That's the good Christian lady. Mm-hmm. So I had that's, so much. That's twos. Yeah. 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 And I had so much conditioning around. Yeah. All of my, believe. all of the yeah. things, all of the, who I wanted to be being bad that I was like, oh, I'll cling to this thing that's good for the Christian church. So what, what do you mean bad? Hang on. Well, all the things that were bad, you flesh that out. Yeah. A little. Yeah. Cause, um, so the type eight, the reason that it's taught, which I, I think it's, it sounds like a often is taught like a white male with a lot of power is because the type eight focus is who has power? What are they doing with it? Are they wielding it well? There's a focus on um, autonomy and make me making sure that I keep my autonomy, but also making sure that I avoid being hurt. Um, there's a focus on me being in control of my destiny and creating and having an impact in the world. And that was not really encouraged in Christian community, especially white evangelical community. Um, And so it was like, you can serve. And that's what twos do, twos serve. Twos twos serve, they don't lead. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so... So you can two, but you can't eat. Right. Which is like evangelicalism. (laughs) You just wrapped up evangelicalism in the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Yes. A lot of women who come to the Enneagram through white evangelicalism think that they yeah. are twos at first. Mm-hmm. And there's a, re- so th- there's the revelation will pop out with the social media square and be like, you're really not a two. Psst. Hey, not a two. Right. It's, it's part of, and, and I don't, and the reason that I don't recommend tests is because often when we're testing, there's an ideal that we're holding of ourselves and we're answering from that ideal. And it takes a good amount of self-awareness, self-reflection, and the ability to be vulnerable with ourselves and be real with ourselves that it takes to answer uh, that binary test with the level of honesty. Now, tests also have bias. And so that means that the person writing it, their their description of what a a type two or type eight looks like are the people in their lives. So if they've never seen a black eight, female type eight, they don't, they don't know how to describe that. They're Mm. not going to describe that accurately um, at all. Right. They're going to go with the people that they know. So there's inherent implicit bias within that no doubt, um, as well, but also it takes something and it takes a commitment to reality. And I think that white evangelicalism requires you to suspend your relationship with reality in a lot of ways that are unhel- mm. unhelpful when it comes to self-awareness in any way. Whew. I mean, I wouldn't even pick on evangelicals. Well, I mean, sure, let's pick on evangelicals. Well, I mean, but I think any folks, I mean, I, I would I would assume, maybe you can correct me here, that the, the Enneagram is relatively new in evangelical spaces. Um, and in many, they would never adopt it um, as a tool. Right white progressives have certainly jumped on board <laughs> uh they're on they're on the enneagram ship they are 
They are, they are on it. I remember when I, I was, you know, just being obsessed with the Enneagram for so long. Like I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I remember when it was first really starting to get popular at churches and there were all of these sermons with people preaching about the Enneagram and how it could help you, but what they weren't actually talking about the Enneagram. And I'm like, that's not what the Enneagram is. You're changing the Enneagram to make it something that you want it to be because you feel like you're going to lose people if you don't. I've so seen what were they the, trying to be? Um, oh God, a lot of things, but they were just like misteaching what it actually is. To fill an whole, agenda. You know, what the whole point of it was and all of, all of, all of that. And it was just very like, ew, I was so grossed out by it. I'm like, maybe you like the Enneagram, maybe you don't, but don't teach it as something that it's not. I find so often that when I'm speaking to people who have been in white evangelical spaces and that's how they found the Enneagram, there is so much misinformation and things that just aren't true or accurate about the types. And I have to be like, <laughs> Well, actually, that's not what the type is. And I just feel like an a-hole. And I feel so mean because I'm like, I'm ruining your, like the, the delusion yeah. that you're in. But I'm like, but that's not what the type is. So whatever, mm. whoever you heard that from, I'm so sorry. But that ain't it. That's a delusion. Yeah. So if that's, uh, you, you've encountered th these aspects of what it ain't, right? But what is it supposed to be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Enneagram, it is a personality typing system. And it is so our personality is part of our ego structure. And it gives us a sense of self and ideal about, you know, the world about who we should be in the world. Um, we need a personality to exist. We need our ego structure. It just is what it is, right? Without it, we wouldn't really function. Our Enneagram type. Now, there's nine types that are distinct, but our Enneagram type is a mix of our core fears and desires. So the things that we're motivated by. So fears that make us potentially not take action to avoid them coming true, fears that make us move towards something else, right? Desires where we we want the things that we want. And so we will take action that is in line with those things. Um, and those are the things that drive us. Now, when we move away from the thing that we desire or close to what we're fearing, or when there's some kind of existential crisis in our lives, then we also are driven to act out the reactivity of our type. And that comes through the passion, which is like an emotional, energetic quality. It's a quality of the heart. When you think of passion, it's like the thing that must be faced. It comes from passion of the Christ. Um, you know, what you, the thing that's unavoidable within you, like it is, it's, it's leading us there. Um, there's also a mental habit called the fixation that gives us mental patterns of our type. And then there's also the defense mechanism, which is kind of like, I call it like the security or bouncer of the type. When, when we move towards something that our type does not like, that might cause us some kind of harm or be opposed to or anti the ideal that we have, 
our defense mechanism makes sure that that doesn't happen through its own specific type way. And so the Enneagram ultimately is this beautiful tool, not for understanding what we do, but for understanding our why to understanding like, okay, I might've taken this action, but I did it because as a type eight, I was making sure that you weren't even close to being able to harm me. The why behind it is the thing that's the most important. I see people over-focusing so much on behavior and two types can have the same behavior, but for very different reasons. Behavior mm. doesn't always drive us to our why, but we can look and say like, okay, what was, what was my why? Why did I do that? Like, that's how we can use it. We can look and see what we did and then inquire and reflect around what was our why? Why did I show up like that? Why did I yell? Why was I mad? Um, what were the things that were at play? So the self-awareness and self-reflection that the Enneagram gives us opportunity for um, comes from understanding our motivations. And that's also what leads us to our healing is when I can say as a type eight mm. that I was, I was afraid that you were going to hurt me because I've been hurt in ways that I don't want to experience before. And so I was guarded. And so I did these things because I was guarded. Then I can say, okay, what protection do I really need? Do I need that same level of defense or can I let it go? Because our Enneagram type as being part of our ego structure gives us, it gives us sensitivities in the world. So, you know, if I, as in type eight, am avoiding vulnerability, then anything outside of me that's going to seem like a vulnerability to me is going to be almost like amplified. And I'm going to do my everything that I can to try to avoid it. And so as I do more of my healing work, I can say, oh, that's not like a real threat that I have to worry about. And I can say, oh, that's why I have been showing up the way that I have. And actually, that's not as adaptive as I thought it was. It was adaptive way back when, when I was, I call myself, like my pre-Enneagram days, I call, I, I say that I was a baby eight. Like I was a little baby eight, just not knowing, not being aware of anything, and, you know, I needed those protections then. And now I can say, like, do I need the same level of protection that I used to? Because we want to be protected from the things that are actually dangerous, but we don't want to walk around with our protection all the time. And that's something that I see in Christian spaces, progressive spaces, too, is like, well, I'm just an Enneagram, too. So I'm just going to so I'm just going to, like, force myself and help someone. I'm going to force myself onto them. And it's like, um, mm. well, that's trash. So how about you not? Because <laughs> mm. how about consent? How about all these other things? Mm -hmm. um, and you feeling like you have to be the one who helps someone has nothing to do with that other person. So you are pretending like it does, but it's all you. It's all you. And it's all your desire to do what you can to make yourself seem as helpful as possible so you can get love. And part of the work of the type two is to actually embrace that I'm already loved 
to give myself love and then to give for my overflow so that I'm not grasping or manipulating people to get the love that I wish that I could, that I'm not sure that I can ask for. Um, and it keeps my, our relationships much more clean. Hmm. I just said a lot. <laughs> well, but it's filling in the blanks for folks like me who are have a nascent understanding of, of the Enneagram, which as you're describing, it comes across as another tool or resource that can develop into a skill for the potential of healthy growth, the potential of whether you take that road yes. onto healthy growth. Um, and, and that growth unto health is a pathway that also leads through the places you need healing, mm-hmm. which is, and I, and I don't know enough to say whether or not that is a particular objective or goal of Enneagram typing or work. Is it? Yeah, that's really what it's about. I think people people get into it sometimes to just know themselves. But I all the time I'm yeah. like yelling at everyone. Well, no one in particular, but everyone in particular, you know, yeah, yeah. like do the work. It's not enough to just know your type. Knowing your type is the first step. Self-awareness yeah. is great. And the point is to understand what your work is so that you can do it. And then that creates more healing, more growth. And then you get more like a, a, a wider experience of who you are in the world. Like you're not, you don't get to just be like the, the closed off type A and she's used my own type. Like you don't get to be the person who keeps everyone at arm's length. You know, when you do the healing work around, okay, I was feeling really protected because I felt like my vulnerability was going to get me killed. Then I can, I can do my healing work around that so that I have more of my heart that's available for mm. me and for the important relationships in my life. And it just gives me more access to me. Hmm. That's a word. Would you think that, would you say that the contemporary understanding or, or the general understanding of Enneagram is just around that identity piece? Like just get me my numbers. Um, I want to learn more about myself. And then it's sort of, stops there is that kind of that's what it feels like a lot of the time yeah and you know one <laughs> one enneagram teacher was like you know um inner work is outer work and i haven't necessarily seen that i think that there has to be a level of intentionality um because i think people mm. want to know about themselves and that's a great thing I think when we choose to not know things about ourselves, like being willfully ignorant is not, it's not like a, an honorable posture. Like it's just, but I see people take it all the time, especially like in Christianity. It's easier. It's yeah. Easier. Like you, like all these people are going to know it. They're, if they know so much about each other, it's like the Tower of Babel. They're going to 
trying to be like God. <laughs> it's like they're gonna take over the world or build a bridge. Like it's like duh. It's it's just irritating to me. Um, and so I'm very much a we we know ourselves because a knowing ourselves and understanding like what colors our souls, what make what brings us life and makes mm-hmm. us passionate. I understand like those mm-hmm. are beautiful things to understand about ourselves. And yeah, yeah. we do it because it impacts how we move in the world. Cause we're not yeah. just individuals. We're individuals living this collective experience. Yes. So we yes. are people who like when I'm reactive and I yell at someone because I feel like I need to defend myself, even when maybe my nervous system is just really sensitive and they weren't a real threat to me. I have to be able to take responsibility for that. And so under so this is where the behavior part comes in because our behavior points to what we need to take accountability around. But the understanding the motivations underneath the behavior point us to what we need the healing around. Hmm. And those are two parts of the process, but they're distinct parts of the process. So one is like, okay, I need to reconcile and and be accountable for the ways that I showed up and the ways that were maybe hurtful for other people or ways that even diminished myself because of out, out of fear. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. When we're when we are afraid, when we feel like we need to be protected, I think it's better to protect ourselves. But what our what the Enneagram gives us is the chance to see is I don't actually need to be as protected all the time as I am. So why am I choosing this level, this thickness of defense? And that's where we get to say, oh, okay. No, I get to, I get to show more of my heart. You know, for the type eight, our hearts are so squishy and tender Hmm. and like fleshy and, you know, soft So, of course, that defense is going to be big and you can't even get a step. Don't take a step further or I will kill you because I'm going to protect my heart. Like, of course, that would be a very strong defense. That makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense Mm -hmm. when I think about it. Mm -hmm. And as I start to do the work, I can see like I don't need that level of defense for where I am right now. I've needed it before, but I'm actually okay. So in what ways can I do the embodiment work Mm. to actually hold myself in those times when I may feel a little bit fragile or tender? How can I give myself that love so that I don't feel like I have to be jumping down people's throats on my mom's, some of my mom's favorite uh, uh, feedback was like, why are you jumping down my throat? And I'm like, ah. I am, but I feel like I need to protect myself. That's why. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's a defense. Yeah, yeah. So now it's like, oh, I can, I'm much more discerning about when and to whom I show my heart to, but it's not always tucked away. It's tucked away when it needs to be, but mm-hmm. it's not always. And I realize getting out of, um, you know, higher ed and working for myself, it comes with being an entrepreneur comes with its own challenges. But being in the yeah. predominantly white world where men, um, white men who were in power, didn't really know how to interact with me, 
because it seemed like they felt like I was trying to take their power in some kind of way because as an eight, I just hold my own sense of power. Never was, but I needed to be defended because I was being attacked regularly for having an opinion, for being passionate about something, for not being passionate enough about something. There was always something there. Yeah, yeah. There's always a a new rule. Yeah. Yeah, so I needed it. And I don't need it anymore in the same way. Is it uh, accurate to say that in in the work, that introspective work, as you drop defense, you are in, it's indicative you're in spaces or you are in a place where you can live out your true self? Yeah. There's like a deep self, like a, like a who, who I was made to be in like the... I think of baby. I love babies. And they come and they're so precious and innocent, can't do anything for themselves. They're just, they cry and they try to communicate with us. And we are so like, I don't know what you need. And they, they're, they're tender and need so much support. And they can't protect themselves and they can't defend themselves. Um, And they learn, they learn that their parents either will or won't be there to protect and defend them. And so they develop their own ways of managing expectations around that. But I think when we do our work, we're like reclaiming some of our own innocence, knowing that we and developing the trust within ourselves for ourselves. Like learning like, oh, I was maybe unprotected in my life. But now at 37, I actually, I actually can, I can protect my own self. So mm-hmm. I can let those innocent, sweet parts of mm-hmm. myself that have mm-hmm. that I've hid, that I've hid, that I've protected, that I've built walls around, I can actually let her out a little bit. She can be soft and sweet mm. and cute in the world because I am here. Yeah. I, 37-year-old, is also yes. here to be with her. And mm. I think that that's what our type work actually allows us um, to be more of that innocent, you to know, sweet, pure. That's liberation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's so good. The story of freedom and liberation. I want more of that. You know, we need more of that. You have touched on it a couple of times here. Early on, you spoke to introspection. Like, this tool is only so good as far as you will look inside. And then... There's a critique of inner work and outer work. When does the inner work and where does the introspection become intentional work of embodiment? 
Because just thinking about change might be a step, but when you use the word embodiment, thoughts now turn tangible and touch and feel. And that goes beyond just thinking about change. So where and how does embodiment factor into developing skills and tools through the Enneagram? Yeah, I think it's a massively important part of yeah. our work that we take on with intention. So when I think of embodiment, I think of a few things. One of the things that I think of is our identity. Mm. We have a body. Our body holds identity. I am Black. I have this beautiful brown skin. Mm. I have an Afro. So when I move through the world, I'm fat. When I move through the world, people are going to look at me and they're going to think certain things about me because of their own conditioning, because of whatever judgments they have or whatever thoughts that they have. Um, that's always going to impact whether I'm safe, whether other people feel safe because of their conditioning or whatever. So that's one aspect of embodiment that I think is really important is understanding like how in my body does this show up? The white bodied person needs to be thinking about that. When I walk into a store and I think that I'm asking a simple question, am I really, is it really that simple or is, do I need to actually think about the way that I'm showing up? Hmm. So that's one aspect of embodiment. Another is of course, our nervous system. Our nervous system is patterned by many things. It's patterned by our own trauma. It's patterned by vicarious trauma. It's patterned by intergenerational trauma. You know, our nervous systems like get trauma from our ancestors yeah. um, so that we can be protected from the same, from the, the things that they were hurt by. Um, and it's, it's patterned by the sensitivities of our Enneagram type, which is why it's important to know what are the core fears and desires of our Enneagram type? Because if I don't know that I, you know, have this fear of being controlled, then when I'm controlling and that, that devolves into me being controlling, I'm not going to be able to take the same level of responsibility for it or, or soothe my nervous system. Mm. And there's that other part of embodiment, which is one is just understanding how our nervous systems are patterned, but then the next is like actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. So when I'm triggered, what do I do? Do I have the tools to actually come and soothe myself when I notice that I'm in an Enneagram eight trigger? Now our nervous systems and the ways that they're patterned by privilege and marginalization is so important. And this is where the anti-racism thing comes in. Yeah, okay. Because our socialization starts before we're born, right? We're born into these yeah. systems. Yeah. Um, some of us are born into a system in which we are going to internalize privilege. And some of us are born into a system in which we are going to be marginalized and oppressed on a systemic level throughout out throughout our lives and that means our nervous systems have a certain level of safety 
people who are white and have privilege and are socialized into whiteness. Now, one of the characteristics of whiteness is a conflict aversion. So mm. a white person with privilege whose privilege might be under question. Now they've already internalized advantage because of their privilege. Mm. So then the next thing is you're challenging me and I want to avoid the conflict. So how does that show up in a fight response, for example? Because now if I have internalized privilege and it lands at this pre-verbal level, when we're socialized, the things that we're socialized, they land below the, the, the level of language. So often we don't, the power of the Enneagram, the power of doing anti-racism work is being able to name things. Because our language, the language that we have shapes our reality. That's why people who speak multiple languages have live in multiple worlds and are able to see the world in very different ways because of the language. So our language, the language that we have for things is so, so important. And so if we understand, you know, if I'm a person who has a lot of privilege and I understand that the way that I internalize it, that if someone threatens, if I feel threatened, like someone is threatening that, because now I've internalized that as part of my sense of self and pre-verbally, it's then part of my sense of who I need to be to survive. Then that's actually my work to do, not someone else's. Mm -hmm. So in those spaces, like the white bodied person, the male bodied person, there is a responsibility to say, Oh, that's my privilege being triggered. I actually mm. am safe. I actually can have this conversation. Mm. I actually yeah. don't need to fight, but I do need to hold myself because of so much, so many years, so much time that I have been conditioned to think that if someone is having this conversation, that it means I'm going to lose my life. I mean, you're basically describing when when it comes to anti-racism work um what all white people need to do it's like you're just retelling a story that we all for for black and brown folks already know um now you are actually pulling this tool into a place that might you know might be another tool to match uh, where folks, white folks specifically, are having that dissonance happen within their body. Um, gosh, I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm making a statement here, a sweeping generalization, but there's not a lot of white folks that have developed that introspective skill to be alert of what is happening in their body surrounding uh, the press against white privilege or whiteness. This is why this work is so needed on a large scale, because it's so important that white people are, are able to get the language to do the work. This is the work because a lot of, I mean, you know, the, the pseudo white awakening or whatever we're calling it of 2020. <laughs> the, the white awakening, dang, the pseudo white awakening. Where that is that a thing? Where where did you, where did you get well, that you from? Know, that must be a thing from yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it's just like you know, people were like, "Oh yeah, anti-racism." 
Black oh, Friday totally. was important. And then it. they were like, oh, I have, oh, I'm not I got some other priorities I got to deal with. So where'd y'all go? I thought this was hot. (laughs) It disappeared real quick. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. But with that, you know, like people were getting a lot of intellectual education. And one of the things that I hold and I believe is that until our nervous systems know something is true, it does not matter what we know intellectually. We can know a whole lot until of things. hold up, hold up. Until our nervous system knows it is true, mm-hmm. it, and what was the final part? Until our nervous systems know, we won't actually change, and that's the that's the point. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. because we can know so much intellectually, things can make perfect yeah. sense to us. They can be logical to us, but our nervous system is still here. Like, oh, that's that's actually not part of my survival that's not part of what my nervous system knows to survive so then we get to teach our nervous systems hey buddy (laughs) i i like to think of the nervous system like its own thing that we get to interact with because i think it's it's important to see it as something that we get to impact you know our nervous system is just always functioning it's always just scanning to make sure we're safe to scanning to make sure that there's no impending harm. And so that's, it's always on the, on the prowl. It's always working. It's always doing its thing. And if we know something intellectually, but we have not embodied it, we have not healed Mm -hmm. our nervous system. We have not said, Oh, but I have that when, when, when I have a reaction, Oh, I have this other thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah, can tell yeah. by our trauma responses and we can tell by the reactivity of our Enneagram type when we feel challenged. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can feel it, but you have to have the alertness, develop that skill. And I'll speak to only myself as someone who, I don't know if this is cultural being male, but of not cultivating those skills of being able to listen and respond to what is happening in your body. Yeah. I, I still have problems with that. And that the body is moving too fast for my mind to catch up to explain what is happening. You know, and that this is uh, only something that I can address if I continue the introspective embodied work yeah. to figure out what's going on. And if I don't, then like even Rohati from a year mm-hmm. ago, like, do you see that guy? What a tool. Like he, what, what was he doing? And, and he had not figured out the way to respond to his nervous system, mm-hmm. but not merely as, as this uh, response of survival, but on the other end of that, as you speak on, on survival and, and the connection to our nervous system and its responses, it, the, the healing part, when we mix the healing part in it, that's where the liberation comes from. Not to use my own story now, go back to as you were sharing on white folks. White folks need to be free from the shackles of the system that are pulling them down as well. Yes. Because whiteness is inherently disembodying whiteness as we know it. Because if we, you know, our nervous systems and our sense of self is connected. Individualism is just something, it's a characteristic of whiteness that has kept white people thinking that they're 
all alone, that they're just themselves, that they're not really part of a group. Like what is, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm white, but what does that really mean? You know, I hear the things that I hear. Yeah, it's an erasure. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, an erasure absolutely. of their own souls, but they don't realize it. Mm, because it came with a little glimpse of power and privilege, exactly. a taste. But it, that taste comes at the expense of black and brown and marginalized bodies. Yep. That ain't good. Right, ain't right. Exactly. Exactly. And so Name the, the reclamation mm -hmm. of the body, you know, I part of part of what mm. I really think embodiment is as well is like, do you acknowledge your body? I so many white people see their body as like something that they kind of use to do things done, get yeah. things done, but not necessarily yeah. as part of who they are. And I'm yeah. very much yeah. one yeah. for body. I'm very much for body love, body positivity, but I will, if you just start mm. with body acknowledgement, I have a body, mm. this is how my body impacts the world. This is how I move through the world because of my body. These are opportunities that I have. These are opportunities that I don't have. Like getting clear about all those things is an important part of our embodiment. And if we truly say that we, that black lives matter, how can you say that if you hate your body, if you're at war with your mm. body, like how mm. is that an how does that have integrity? I don't understand how that has yeah. integrity and no one has been able to answer. Dang. And I would love an answer if anyone has one. Like, how can you <laughs> truly say that if you hate yourself? Otherwise, it's just a projection. Can we say that we really love from a projection? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. That's formative. This is so good. Oh, this is so good. This is a cultural formation that's happening here in all of its intersections mm -hmm. of how, and I'll, and I'll pick on us for, for a second here, us being Christians, and that we have figured out maybe the ideas of love, usually just in our head, because it lacks the embodiment of what that love looks like in practice. But uh, when it comes to our body, we have forgotten to love ourselves. Like we can't love others if we can't even love ourselves. We don't know how to love ourselves. We've been formed in, in Christian teachings and spiritual formation of how to ignore thyself or deny thyself rather than to love ourselves. And for you to connect all those pieces into, you, you don't even think about how you're going to love your neighbor or love marginalized folks or, or do well in those things unto justice and liberation until you have the pieces together of, of even seeing yourself. Yeah. And of course, not to divorce it, the individual, um, but to wrap it all the way around to the front, as you shared, how the individual is an individual, but one in a collective, in community. Yeah. And that is the place where we need to find and build our collective liberation. Yep. You have a book here. It, there, there's all these pieces to this incredible book that then people can buy and just read and not embody. <laughs> but at least they bought the book. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like you got all the answers. You got three steps here. Just give me the book and uh, we'll talk about it in our book study. And uh, away we go. You know, it would be hot. All the embodiment books right now are hot too it's as true. well. So, I mean, there's something here. And, and this is actually what gives me quite a bit of hope, both in, in 
boy, the, the, the work that you are doing, but also there, there seems to be a cultural shift happening amongst a, a lot of different folks across the spectrum who are curious and are doing the necessary work of embodiment. Um, we need to bring down socially as society to bring down the barriers so that that exercise is not merely one uh, that privileged folks, you know, folks who can afford a therapist, yep. folks who who need the help can get the help. Um, we, we need to figure out how to drop those barriers. But I, I kind of have a sense of of hope and it's Advent right now. Yeah. This probably won't come out during Advent, but a sense of hope that there is a shift culturally happening where we're starting to make sense that we're not disembodied people, rather like Christ is the incarnate Christ. We are blood and flesh people who desire to be free and whole in community. Yes. Like, give me, give me that Christianity. Yes. And, and I think we'll, we might <laughs> be all right. I'm you, you have hope. Like, how, how are you feeling with, what is your body saying when it comes to the work, specifically your work around, however, the embodiment piece unto healing and also the anti-racism piece unto freedom? I have hope. I have so much hope. I see my clients. I've worked with a few clients for maybe almost two years or I started my business in 2020. So um, some have been with me kind of near the beginning and we, we still work together even on indi an individual level or at the group level. And I see the, how different their lives are. Mm. Yeah. And it's potent and it's so powerful. And it's mm. like, we couldn't, the question, the conversation that we're having today, like we couldn't have had six months ago or, you know, a, a year ago, a year and a half ago, but we are, they, they are doing the deep work and it is a gift. It is a gift to the world. It's a gift to the people in their lives. It's beautiful. And so um, I don't always love being an entrepreneur, like the entrepreneur parts of it, where I'm like, oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta do a post or I gotta do all these other things, blah, blah, blah. But the work. Salary. Oh. Hmm. I I have not experienced much like it. Hmm. Sounds life giving. The beauty of someone who is able to say, oh, yeah, that is privilege. That is my privilege. Okay. What am I going to do with it? And mm -hmm. to take action. Mm -hmm. It's a wow. It's a, it's beautiful. Anything that we didn't cover, you want to give a shout out to or. Hmm. Let me check in with myself. Hmm. I think the most important thing that I want to leave with is that everyone would know that this work comes from a place 
of you already being whole, of you already having value that cannot be diminished. Hmm. And coming from that place where shame doesn't become who we are, it just becomes an experience or emotion that we move through, that we deal with, that we move on from, that allows us to understand that we felt it because we cared about people. We wanted to be seen in a good way. And that's just part of being human. This reclamation of our humanity, it comes from us already being whole. It doesn't come from us needing to fix a part of ourselves, but to reclaim a part of ourselves that has been taken Mm. for the acquisition of power sometimes, for status at times, Um, but that we get to be whole coming from that we already are and reclaiming ourselves. And it doesn't come from, I have to fix myself or none of that to me Mm. actually leads to lasting change. You offered us so many life-giving words. So thank you for being here. Where can folks find you? Yeah, um, probably the best place to find me is my Instagram, Jessica D. Dixon Coaching, or Jessica D. Dixon. You'll get a little bit more of my personal spice um, on the non-coaching one, which is awesome. And so I have a group program called Life on Vulnerability. That's a six-month group program. I enroll that every quarter. Um In 2023, I have a series of workshops called Living Liberation. And so that's an opportunity if you really want to do the work. It's part learning, part practice um, within community. 